Take your copy of the Scriptures, open with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We're going to be considering together verses 11 through 14, particularly paying attention to the last part of verse 12 through verse 14. Let me just read it and then ask the Lord's blessing to give us understanding of this ancient true, transforming word. Romans 6, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Would you bow with me? We thank you, our Father, that we have before us not just an ancient word, but a holy, sanctifying word. A true word that is unrelenting in its truthfulness. A truthfulness that does not end, does not waver, does not change. A truth that is irrefutable. A truth that is just that. It is truth and by definition it is inerrant. It is without error. It is without error in everything it declares about you. It is without error in everything that it declares about Christ It is without error in everything it declares about us. It is without error in everything it declares about our salvation and the working out of our our salvation. It is in every way without error, fully trustworthy, fully good. It is by this ancient, holy, true word that we have been brought to life in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for this word and ask that as we consider this brief passage this morning, that we would be utterly transformed today. Might we leave this place not the same as we have come into it for your sanctifying work, your saving work has been wrought in our hearts this day. And so we commend our time in this book to you that you be honored And we be changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1940, Japan formed an alliance with several Axis powers, Germany and Italy, to the dismay of Isoroku Yomamatu, the commander-in-chief of Japan's combined fleet. He protested the alliance without success and then set about the task of preparing what he perceived to be an inevitable war with the United States. 
In that same year, the Japanese planners evaluated the strength of Japan in comparison to the strength of the United States and determined that, quote, the United States had more steel, more wheat, more oil, more factories, more shipyards, more of nearly anything, everything in the empire. Further, the industrial capacity of the United States was 74 times greater and it had 500 times more oil than Japan. Yomamoto's task seemed insurmountable. But he devised a plan to hit the United States in the chest with a bold attack at Pearl Harbor. Quote, Japan as a smaller power must settle it on its first day with a strike so breathtaking and brutal that American morale goes down to such an extent that it cannot be recovered. And so he attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, as you are well aware, launching 183 airplanes from his aircraft carriers in the first wave against Pearl Harbor, following that with 170 more planes in a second wave and a second attack. The devastation of Pearl Harbor was brutal. Says one historian, by the end... 19 U.S. ships lay destroyed or damaged, and among the 2,403 Americans dead or dying were 68 civilians. Nothing as catastrophically unexpected as self-image shattering had happened to the nation in its 165 years. America is speechless, a congressman said the next day, as the smell of smoke, fuel, and defeat hovered over Pearl. Long-held assumptions about American supremacy and Japanese inferiority had been holed as surely as the ships. With astounding success, with astounding success, Time magazine wrote, the little man has clipped the big fellow. The Chicago Tribune conceded, there can be no doubt now about the morale of Japanese pilots, about their general abilities as flyers, or their understanding of aviation tactics. It was now obvious that the adversary would take the risks that defied American logic and could find innovative ways to solve problems and use weapons. The attack was beautifully planned, Admiral Kimmel would say, as if the Japanese had executed a feat beyond comprehension. Why was Japan so successful on that initial attack against American America? Historian Steve Twomey writes this, Although the disaster destroyed the careers of both the Navy and Army commanders on Oahu, exhaustive investigations made clear that its causes went beyond any individual in Hawaii or Washington. Intelligence was misread or unshared. Vital communiques were ambiguous. Too many search planes had been diverted to the Atlantic theater. More devastating, Americans simply underestimated the Japanese. Their success at Pearl Harbor was due partly to astounding good luck but also to American complacency anchored in two assumptions. One, that our Asian adversary lacked the military deftness and technological proficiency to pull off an attack so daring and so complicated. And two, that Japan knew and accepted that it would be futile to make war on a nation as powerful as the United States. The inherent power and strength of the United States seemed to make an attack 
ludicrous. We seemed ready, but we were not. And we paid a tremendous price for our presumption and our unpreparedness. The account of Pearl Harbor serves as an allegory for our spiritual lives. Because we have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are, we are tempted to presume that we need nothing more. We're safe. We're secure. And if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, indeed we are secure. Our eternal destiny is secure. There is nothing that will rip us out of the protective hand of God. And yet there is something more that we have been called to do. We've been called to act on our salvation, to pursue sanctification, to live out the reality of what we are in Jesus Christ. In Paul's terminology in Romans 13, we can say that some of us have fallen asleep and have been inattentive to the need to act intentionally and to aggressively pursue sanctification. As we consider the timing of the Lord's return, his soon return, his imminent return, we would say with the Apostle Paul, it is time for us to act on our salvation. It is time for us to pursue a sanctification in accord with the justification by which we have been declared righteous before God. When we consider what we are in Christ, and when we consider Christ's goal for us, we cannot be apathetic about our salvation. We need to act on our salvation. We must pursue transformation. So it is that the Apostle says in Romans chapter 13, it is time to intentionally act on the salvation we have been given. We've been given a salvation that is free to us, a salvation that comes to us through no merit on our own, solely by an act of God's grace on our behalf, a salvation that is free and eternal and infinite in its scope, and brothers and sisters, it is time to live out that salvation that we have received from Him. It is time to aggressively pursue sanctification in accord with that salvation. In these verses, the Apostle will call us to three actions and provide us with one extended motivation for our actions. Last time we looked at the first of the acts to which we've been called, and we looked at the motivation for that act, and this morning... We're going to look at the final two calls to act action in our sanctification. Just by way of reminder, the first thing the, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls us to is the realization that it is time to do something. It is time to do something. That is, it is time to act on our salvation and pursue holiness in accord with that salvation. Notice verse 11 do this knowing the time. Following what the apostle has said about loving one another in the church body in the immediately preceding verses, and in fact, following everything that he has said in chapters 12 and 13, he says, do all these things that I have spoken of as acts of service to one another, as a manifestation of your justification. It is time to do this. It is time to love one another. It is time to serve one another. It is time to use our spiritual gifts. It is no time to hold out retribution against one another when we are persecuted. It is time to submit to the government. 
It is time to love one another. It is time to take seriously the responsibility to be sanctified. And when I say that, I don't mean that we are sanctified on our own. I do not mean that we sanctify ourselves. We understand that if we see a person who is sanctified, that he has been sanctified because of the work of the Spirit of God. We, we, we found that truth repeatedly in chapter 8. Consider verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so if the Spirit of God that raised Christ dwells inside of you, then He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 13, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you see anyone who is putting to death the flesh, mortifying sin, fighting aggressively against sin, you understand that that is the Spirit of God who dwells in him who's doing that. But we also understand that that is not something that we simply wait for the Spirit of God to do, but that we also work in synergistic conjunction with the Spirit of God to pursue sanctification. It is not either or, it is both and. It is us and the Spirit. Verse 14 of chapter 8. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you're led by the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, acting out what the Spirit is working in you, then you are God's Son. It takes the Spirit of God and it takes us working towards our sanctification. We would say this, there is no sanctification apart from our labors. We must work. And Paul is calling and exhorting us to sanctification. Our salvation should produce a genuine change and transformation in our lives. We've been given the Spirit of God to accomplish that work, and we must submit to, follow, and cooperate with Him in that process of sanctification. That's all simply a way to say, friends, no one is sanctified accidentally. If you are sanctified, it is because you have set your heart to pursue Christ in everything. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that this sanctification is, quote, the main thing a Christian should look after. It is the one thing needful. It is time to pursue sanctification with all of our energy. Why? Why should we take spiritual action? We found this in the middle of verse 11 through verse 12. And the reason is because time is short. Time is short. In the heart of this book, chapters 4 through 8, the apostle explained the connection between justification, the the declaration of our righteousness, and sanctification, the working out of our righteousness. And he says this, because we have been justified, we should live our lives as an expression of our salvation. We are not saved by works, but we are saved to a salvation that always works. Not to merit the gift, but as a response to and a gratitude for what we have been graced with. 
And what we see in this, and we see this reality in sections like chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Reckon yourselves, think about yourselves as being dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, unrighteousness, but rather present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, you have been graced with this salvation. Now work at living out this salvation. In fact, this was, this was the very testimony of the church in Rome. It's been a few years now, but perhaps you remember chapter 1. First, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed through the whole world. You have such a faith that it has produced such sanctification in you that you have a worldwide testimony as to how God has changed you. In fact, that's the very thing that he will again affirm at the end of the book. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. In other words, your, your testimony of your faith and how you're being sanctified, again, is a worldwide testimony. This is the reality of who you are. Again, we, we do well to remember the gospel message in the book of Romans. The gospel message is that we are sinners. We do nothing to merit our salvation. We bring nothing to our salvation except our sin. There's none who's righteous. There's none who does good. There's none who pursues after God. There's none who seeks God. No, not one. There are no God seekers. There are only God haters. We do nothing to merit our salvation. We do nothing to contribute to our salvation to bring it about. Christ alone is the reason by which we can be saved. Paul makes that again clear in chapter 3. It's not us. It's Him. We are justified, verse 24 of chapter 3, as a gift by His grace. We might add alone through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, again, we might add, alone, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, and this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. We don't do salvation. We don't bring about salvation. Christ alone is the means of our salvation, and it is received not through works, but by faith, verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. We do nothing to merit and we believe only the gospel of Christ and that alone is the means by which we're saved. That's justification. And brother, brothers and sisters, if you do not believe that this morning, I appeal to you, that's your only hope. You have no hope in this world except to believe that Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross, He paid a debt that is infinite, 
and eternal in scope that we could never pay. And he washed it away. And God said, I'm satisfied. In fact, as Jesus hung on the cross, John 19:30, and he said, it is finished. It marked the end of his work. It's done. It's complete. The father is satisfied. That's your only hope is to believe that he paid a debt that you can't pay. But that being said, in these verses that are before us in Romans 13, the apostle is building on that gospel by calling us to be sanctified in particular ways. And he is calling us to be sanctified. Again, note verse 11, because the hour for you to awaken from sleep is now. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Christ is coming and He is coming soon. The night of sin is almost gone. The day of Christ's return is near. Why be sanctified? Because He's coming. And there will be an accountability on that day and it's time to take it seriously. All that's review. This is new. What else should we do? It is time to put off sinful deeds. It's time to put away sin. Notice the principle as Paul stated it in verse 12. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. That little phrase, lay aside, is actually one word in the original text. It's only used nine times in the New Testament, but it regularly appears in sanctification passages. You're familiar with it in Colossians 3 that we just read earlier. You're familiar with it in Ephesians chapter 4. It appears also in James chapter 1. Therefore, putting aside, that's our word, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. When he says lay aside or put off, it has the, has the idea of, of taking off a filthy garment of sin. Just as we don't wear our yard-working clothes to a black-tie dinner, the apostle is saying it is time to take off the filthiness of our sin in order to be ready for Christ's return. Christ died to liberate us from sin. He did not die to enable us to continue to live in sin and to cultivate sinful habits. And because of what we are in Jesus Christ, sin is now contrary to our new nature. Sin is what we were. Sin is not what we are. It is inconceivable then that we would continue to cultivate desires and engage in sins that are so opposed to what Jesus has saved us to be and to do. Which is why Paul says in Romans 6 that we read earlier, are we to continue in sin so that God's grace might increase? May it never be. That's abhorrent. Might, might such a scenario never come to life? No, no, a thousand times no. What is it that the apostle says we're to lay aside? The deeds of darkness. 
Darkness in Scripture typically denotes evil. It denotes the sin nature. It denotes our old position in Adam, what we were before redemption. It indicates both where sin comes from and where sinners ultimately will go. And what we should notice from this little phrase, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, is that it is possible as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ to not sin. If you are in Christ, sin is not your master. You no longer have to sin. The believer in Christ is now able to put off and to stop and to end this mad pursuit of sin and evil. We're not bound by sin, but we are able to be renewed and act and live a renewed life. Brothers and sisters, when the apostle and God through the apostle's pen commands us, lay aside deeds of evil, it is not a command of futility. No one who is in Christ can say, I can't. Now, we may at times say, I won't, but that's a different problem, isn't it? If you're in Christ, you have everything you need to say, I won't. I will put this off. It's not impossible. There is no I can't in the spiritual life. So the principle is simply this. The believer in Christ is to be purposeful in fighting against remaining sin in his life and to aggressively labor not to sin. Is that your pursuit today? Is that your yearning today? Are we being watchful about the influences of evil? Or, as he has warned, have we fallen asleep towards Christ And as we noted last time, in falling asleep towards Christ, are we asleep towards Him and awake towards sin and pursuing sinfulness? Are we more interested in sin than transformation from sin? Oh, brothers and sisters, we have been enabled by the gospel and given the gift of the Spirit so that we can change. It's time. It's time. To take seriously this command. That's the principle that it is stated. That's in verse 12. Then the apostle in verse 13 applies that principle to particular sins. What are the, what are the evil deeds, the deeds of darkness that the believer should lay aside? To what kinds of temptations should we be attentive and alert and watchful? And Paul in verse 13 identifies three categories of sin. This is what we might call a vice list. And there are a number of these in the New Testament. And Paul is not being exhaustive. He's not saying when you, when you, when you conquer these, you're done. But these are merely samples of the kinds of things that we ought to be working aggressively to put off, to lay aside. And notice that as Paul begins that in verse 13, He introduces these categories of sin by saying, let us behave properly as in the day. What day? The day of the Lord. In other words, let us behave now 
as if Christ's return has already come and we're already in the kingdom. Let us do now what we will do then. It's very similar to what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So then we have as our ambition, whether at home in heaven or absent, still here on earth, to be pleasing to the Lord. In heaven, it'll be our desire to please the Lord above all else. That's the only thing that will be on our minds. And that is the same ambition that we have here on earth. That's exactly what the apostle is saying here. Let us behave now as we will then. Let us have the ambition of Christ-likeness now that we will have in glory. And Paul addresses in verse 13 six particular sins. They really fit together around three categories. They're three, three paired sins that he identifies. One category is the category of physical appetites. The category of physical appetites. Notice the first pair. He says, not in carousing and drunkenness. Carousing uh, refers to um, the act of eating inordinate amounts of food late in the night at parties and revelries. Feasting way to the extreme. And the second, he talks about drunkenness. That is drinking alcoholic beverages way to excess. In that day, they used alcoholic beverages to purify water. And he's saying we're going way beyond drinking a little bit of water for purification. We're going way beyond a little bit of extra. We're, we're way in the excess. Both these refer to gorging of the physical appetites binging on things that might be acceptable in other contexts and then taking them to excess. If he was writing in 2021, I believe the apostle might be saying something like not binging on Netflix and not binge buying on Amazon. Not to get anybody's kitchen, of course. The problem is not that these sins are inherently evil. There's nothing wrong with eating. I recommend eating. It's a good thing to do two or three times a day. The problem is in the excess. The problem is in the self-indulgence. The problem is that it is done in the wrong context and without restraint. If one is good, four is better. Note also, you may not be able to see this in the text, but these terms, carousing, drunkenness, are both plural forms, indicating that they are repeated acts. They're frequent regular patterns of life it isn't just it isn't just a thanksgiving feast this is the pattern of life where someone is un- uncontrolled in these practices second categories in the next pair not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality the word sexual promiscuity is very similar to our word or our phrase going to bed with someone It is illicit sexual activity. Typically, it would, referring to th- would be referring to things like fornication and adultery. The second word is a lack of restraint in sexual conduct. It's indulgent sexual excess. It's shameless greed for sexual sin. It is animal lust. It is self-centered and unloving. It is a sexuality that takes and does not lovingly give it strips 
the very purpose for which God has made us sexual creatures and given us that gracious gift. It is shameful, flaunted debauchery. As with the first pair of sins, it's a twisting of the perversion and perversion of a good gift from God. So what is done is wrong and the motive by which it is done is also wrong. It's self-indulgent. It's all about me. It's about what I get, not about what I can give. As with the first pair, these terms also are plurals, indicating again that this is the pattern of life. This is the repeated practice of one's life. It's, it's their frequent activity. It's also interesting to note that everything is said so far, these first four words, these first two pairs, all of them typically happen at night. Carousing, late at night. Drunkenness, at night in dark places. Sexual activity, at night. And notice verse 12. Let us lay aside deeds of darkness. And Paul's just emphasizing by the things he is pointing to. Brothers and sisters, these things are not for your life. They are not for your good. They do not come from light. They are not light. They are dark and dead and they will lead you to an eternal darkness. The third set of words, strife and jealousy. These refer to a category that we might call personal conflict. Personal conflict. The word strife refers to dissension, discord, arguments, enmity. It's antagonistic towards another. It is conflict with the intent to win and to harm the other person. It doesn't care about the cost of the argument as long as I win. I will win this argument at all costs. I will put you down at all costs. I will drive you into the ground so long as I win. It is motivated by a self-indulgent ego. The second word, jealousy, is the word zeal. It's an intensive negative feeling for another's achievements, another's possessions, another's position. You have it, and I want it, and I deserve it, and you don't. It belongs to me. <laughs> this isn't in my notes, but as I think about that, I, th I think about a sign that's often in nurseries. You know, toddler's rules, you know. If it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If I see it, it's mine. If you're playing with it, it's mine. That's what's going on here. It's all mine. It's all about me. And again, the these lists are simply representative. There are many other kinds of sin to put off. But if we're going to summarize these six sins, these three categories, we might simply say it this way. Put off thinking about yourself and about exalting yourself and getting what you want. You're not preeminent. And what you get is not important. You have died to self. You need to die to self. So if you're in Christ, you have died to self. That's your position and now you need to act on that position by dying to self. The apostle is going to summarize this in verse 14. 
make no provision for the flesh. There are three emphases in this verse. The first is make no provision. He doesn't say mostly make no provision. He doesn't say get rid of most sin. Work hard, but, you know, we know things happen. Make no provision for the flesh. The idea is that we make a plan and we think ahead. How am I going to handle this sinful temptation? It has the idea of having a foresight and planning ahead for anticipated temptations. We might say it this way, stop making no plan not to sin. Or start making a plan not to sin. Do you do that? Do you make a plan not to sin? How can you change your life so that you won't even face the temptation to sin? Luther, Luther said, um, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, referring to temptation. You can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. I like that. I can't keep a bird from flying over my head. I can't, I can't stop all temptation from coming into my life. But you know what? I can put myself in a place where it's likely that there are going to be fewer birds flying over my head. <laughs> remember one time I went to make a hospital call back when you could actually make hospital calls and um, I parked my car and I like parking in the shade I mean it's Texas, August, summertime you want to park in the shade and I, I was going to park under a tree but there was a car already there so I had to park a little ways away I came out of that hospital call and like every bird in Granbury I think showed up at that one tree I don't remember what the color, color of the car was, but it was white then. He parked in the wrong spot. You can park in a spot where you can't guarantee you won't get hit, but it can be much less likely. That's the apostles calling here. If I go to the mall or if I go to Amazon, I am far more likely to spend money and become covetous than if I stay away from the mall or don't go to Amazon. If I go to a buffet, I am far more likely, history proves it, to eat way more calories than I have budgeted for the day. But if I think ahead, ah, it's Sunday night, popcorn's coming. Okay, Terry, careful at lunch so you can get the popcorn you want in the evening. Then I'm going to fit into my calorie budget much better for that day. If I go to the beach on June 1, I am far more to be tempted by lust than if I go hiking in the mountains on October 1st. If I watch Fox News or read the CNN website, I am far more likely to be angry and complain than if I read my Bible or John MacArthur's latest book. Not that anybody needs to apply that today. Just, just something I'm randomly thinking about. If I don't intentionally think about serving Regine and Emily on my drive home and how their day might have gone 
and anticipate the kind of needs they might have so that I can serve them, I am, if I don't do that, I am far more likely to gripe and complain and even be angry if I'm not served than if I go with the mentality, how can I serve them? If I rehearse conflicts in my mind, I am far more likely to be unforgiving than if I remind myself that I need to search my own heart first and seek out my own logs in my own life. The Apostle's point is simply that our natural godly inclination is to not take sin seriously and to not be intentional in fighting against it. Brothers and sisters, we lose because we don't have a plan. We've just thought, I'm in Jesus, I have the Spirit, I'll stop sinning, and we don't make a plan. And then we're surprised when we end up in the ditch again. It was amazing how many times I didn't have to buy donuts when I stopped driving by the donut shop in the morning and going in. Seriously. When I realized my greed and my covetousness in that area and my lack of restraint, I knew something had to change. I couldn't go into the donut shop in the morning. Brothers and sisters, we've got to make a plan. We might not say about the sanctification process, oh, I believe in the sanctification process of let go and let God. Just let go and God will take care of it. But brothers and sisters, functionally, that's the way many of us live. As if I don't need to make a plan and I don't need to engage and I don't need to fight. Brothers and sisters, this is war. This is a battle. And we need that warrior mentality. Sin must be fought against. It will take work. It is hard. It will take perseverance. Make no provision. There's a second phrase that he emphasizes in this passage, in this verse. Make no provision for the flesh. This is a reminder that while we have, while our nature has changed, we've, we've been moved, if we're in Jesus Christ, we've been moved out of Adam and we are in Christ. Adam is no longer our master. Sin is no longer our master. Christ is our master. We don't have dual controls. It is a single master that is at the head of our life, Jesus Christ. And yet, this phrase is a reminder that we still have remaining sin, don't we? Okay, Carl nods. Carl agrees. He does. And a few more of the rest of you do. Sure. We still have the flesh clinging onto our backs, in a sense, whispering in our ears, go this way, it'll be okay. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't go back to the old way of living. Don't go back to Adam's house. It's a bad house. What is the flesh? The flesh is anything that moves us away from Christ and towards self-indulgent sin. The flesh is anything that says, I am king and Christ is not king. The flesh is, in a word, rebellion against God. And Paul says, don't make any provision for it. Nothing. Make no provision for the flesh. There's a third phrase here in regard to its lusts. That is, flesh has a desire. Flesh has a motive. 
Flesh has a yearning for you, and it is not good. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, Every corruption has a voice. Temptation to sin will speak to our minds and hearts, and that speech has a motive for us, and that motive is destruction. The flesh will always lead you away from Christ. The flesh will feel good at times. I am not going to stand here and say, when you engage in sexual sin, you immediately say, oh, that feels terrible. But the end will. In the moment it may not. But in the end, it will be eternally destructive. Sinful temptation only wants our death. The flesh wants to kill us. Remember James 1? Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I can hear some of you quoting it. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Death kills us. You know, the name Augustine, fourth century churchman, highly intelligent, but his intelligence could not help him conquer his sin, particularly his proclivity for sexual sin. One day while he was out walking, trying to wrestle through and conquer the sin that was conquering him instead, he heard a child playing. And the child said, Tolalege, take up and read. And so he went home. And he picked up his copy of the Scriptures and he opened it. I don't recommend this, but what he did is he opened it and it fell open to Romans 13. And you know what it fell open to in Romans 13? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That verse utterly transformed his life. It gave him the tools he needed in order to fight against the flesh. Oh, brothers and sisters, how are you doing? Are you making provision for sin? Or are you lazy and not fighting? Are you making excuses and indulging in sinful desires and sinful thoughts and sinful actions? Then hear what Paul says. Christ is coming. It's time. It's time to put off what Christ has freed you from. I was afraid this would happen. Next week, I want to think about the putting on and the gloriousness of putting on Jesus Christ. I want you to remember another part of the story from December 7. America was unprepared. Massive destruction. There's part of the story that I'd never heard before that I found out this week. Historian Steve Twomey writes, Out there in the harbor on December 7, something deeply heroic was taking place. 
Through the ten months he had commanded Pearl Harbor, Admiral Kimmel, commander of the Pacific Fleet, had insisted on endless training, on knowing the proper thing to do and the proper place to be. And now that training was becoming manifest. His men began shooting back from the big ships, from the destroyers and cruisers, from rooftops and parking lots, from the decks of the submarines right below his windows. Within five minutes or less, a curtain of bullets and anti-aircraft shells began rising. The first of 284,469 rounds of every caliber the fleet would unleash. An enraged enlisted man even threw our oranges at the enemy. Yomamoto was correct. Japan had begun a war it would never, never win. Not in the face of the industrial might of a now enraged and now wiser America. The military damage of the attack as opposed to the psychological was far less than first imagined. Feverish repairs on the battleships commenced in Hawaii and then on the west coast. The fleet would exact its revenge shortly at the Battle of Midway when American carrier pilots sunk four of the Japanese carriers that had shocked Pearl. And on December 2nd, 1945, the battleship West Virginia, that battleship, now recovered from the wounds of December 7, stood among the naval witnesses to the surrender of the Japanese in Tokyo Bay. That story also serves as an allegory for our spiritual lives. We are in a battle. And there may be devastating losses and injuries. But there is time to get back in the battle. There is time to appropriate the justification that God has given you through Jesus Christ. There is time to take up the armor. There is time to fight against the temptations of the flesh The night of sin is almost over, brothers. The day of the Lord is coming. It is time. Let us take up the the armor of our defense and let us fight the battle that Christ has granted to us to win and pursue sanctification with all vigor. Our Father, we thank you this morning for... These reminders, and we acknowledge that some of us have taken sin not as seriously as we should. We have made assumptions, and we have gone into the battle for sanctification unprepared and ill-equipped. Oh, Father, would you grant us the courage the boldness, the will to take up that which you have given so that we might fight the faith of Christ and win in our daily life the battle that He has won for us in eternity. Oh, Father, you've given us full salvation. Might we live as if we really have been given that salvation. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.